uh, I, I've encouraged uh, our people over the last uh, months to read a book called The Cure, C-U-R-E, The Cure by John Lynch. And I would highly encourage you to read that book if you have it, because a lot of the thoughts that will be uh, coming out of this series will come from that, as well as another book. Uh, John Ortberg is one of my favorite writers. John Ortberg has written a book called God is Closer Than You Think. And there's a lot of transferable, practical, just truths with God being with us, the whole concept of Emmanuel. So uh, I would highly encourage you to read those because uh, a lot of where we're going is extracted from those two resources, okay? Focus. Seeing God accurately, seeing ourselves honestly. Seeing God for who he is and seeing ourselves for who we are. Now, the question has to be posed, what is your view of God? What is your personal view of God? Who is he? And what is he like? And what has happened in your life to shape and kind of uh, create the view of God that you have today? A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind? What has shaped this God-style paradigm and view? So to say it another way, your personal concept of God is the most important thought you have because it drives the way you do life. Whoever your God is, whoever your Lord is, ever how you see this God is going to motivate and determine how you do life. Now, backdrop, Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter that we have in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 talks about how God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, etc. Trees, plants, animals, and he gets to the end of that uh, sixth day, and he says he created and made man in his own image. Chapter 2, when you start to ponder it, to me, I believe verse 16 of Genesis 2 is the linchpin that we find there in the Genesis account, where he says he placed the man, Adam, in the garden, and he looked at him and said, you are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but if you eat off the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So Genesis 2.16 is so crucial because God extends freedom to man Thus, he does not create robots. Genesis 3, enter into the scenario. Man and woman now. Adam and Eve are together. The serpent comes in, begins to entice. And freedom is violated. Freedom is forfeited. The soul that sins will surely die. If you eat off this tree, you're going to die. They ate off of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And something inside of Adam and Eve died that day. They suffered a spiritual death. Now follow me. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. It says that their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Now just hold that thought for a second. Their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Now initially when you read that word naked... It really implies initially to mean without covering. 
As time would go on from the early Genesis account of the fall of man and sin entering into humanity, that phrase naked would come to mean feeling odd, feeling estranged, feeling separated, feeling shamed. The conclusion of all humanity since the fall in the garden has been this. Something is wrong with me. Because of sin and because of the disease that sin places inside of the soul and psyche of all of us, we conclude, even at a young age, something's wrong with me. Sin disrupts humanity at every level. And then what you find immediately is man's first attempt at sin management. Man then comes up with a strategy that he can deal with sin. I I, got to figure out how to manage sin. Verse 7, they sewed fig leaves together. They, 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 Adam and Eve, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Adam and Eve concluded that they could solve their sin problem. Adam and Eve concluded that they could take care of their cleansing and they could take care of their issue. We, We can handle what we've done wrong. We don't need any help. We'll figure it out. Verse 8, they hear God and they hide. They hear God and they hide. And the fact that they're hiding suggests that what they're doing to deal with their sin is not working. Uh, They're hiding. What you're doing screams that it's not working. Now, when we choose to hide and we choose to cover and we choose to run and we choose to bolt, And people do that oftentimes. It screams that your strategy is not working. Anytime you have to hide cover, it's not working. I wrote an acrostic for hide this week. Hindering intimacy by denying exposure. And you're doing it on the vertical and you're doing it on the horizontal. I'm going to hide. I'm not going to connect. I'm not going to be known. I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to be transparent. And we hide. Verse 21 says, God made garments to cover them. And what God was basically saying is, your solution is not working. I will provide a solution that will and so the first blood sacrifice takes place. He takes the skin of the animal and he covers them. Now, 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 back to verse 10. Back to verse 10. God said, where are you? Where, where, where are you? What's up? And Adam said, I, I was afraid and I hid. I, I've never felt like this before. I've never had these kind of feelings before, so I freaked out, and I put on a mask. I I tried to come up with a human solution to an internal solistic problem, and, and I freaked out, and I put on a mask. And when you and I fail, which we all do, if we're not careful, we conclude that those around us have no chance of really being able to identify with how great and grave our failure is. So to protect ourselves, we grab a mask. And I can never let anybody see the real me, and I can never allow anybody to know the real me. So 
we perform and we pose and we pretend and we bluff and we put others down and we attack others all in an attempt to hide the real me. I can't let you know the real me, so I'm going to find a flaw in you. And if I can find a flaw in you and put you down, then we don't have to look at me. So I'll use deflection and I'll use denial and I'll live a twisted life, but I'm not going to deal with me. I'm going to wear a mask. You'll never know me. Nobody will ever know me. Time marches on and before we know it, we're introduced to John 3.16. Someone comes to us and says, I want to share something with you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, you don't have to perish. You can have eternal and everlasting life. And we look and we go, that's what I need. I've been posing. I've been hiding. I've been covering. I've been trying to deal with my own stuff. I need somebody to save me from me. And if God loved the world, I live in the world and I'm part of the cosmos. And undoubtedly God loves me. And we go, yes, save me. Come in and take over my life. And maybe we repent and maybe we respond to the gospel. And as we start kind of hanging out and we pick up the Bible and we start reading, we get introduced to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and we read that God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And we're going, yes, yes, that's what I need. I need to know that I'm righteous. And God took his son and crucified and murdered him on the cross and allowed him to shed his blood and God said he did that to atone and deal with sin once and for all. Yes, I don't have to stay lost. I can have eternal life. So we conclude he loves me and he accepts me and he pursues me and he wants me. And we start to kind of believe that maybe he is a good, good father. But before we know it, because of the fallen world in which we've come out of and all the flesh patterns that we've established and developed over the years, we sit there and go, but what now? What now? What should I do? There's got to be something I've got to do because if you don't pass, you don't play and the world says you've got to perform and undoubtedly God's economy has got to be like man's economy. What, what do I need to do? And if you're like me, you, you got invited to church. Yes, that's what I need to do. I need to go to church. I need to get around God and God's people. And one of the first messages you hear is, are you pleasing God with your life? And you sit there and you start to think, yes, pleasing God, that implies I've got to do something. I knew I had to do something. This whole gospel message that it's a free gift, that's too good to be true. There's nothing free. Are you pleasing God with your life? So you sit there and you begin to ponder, what is that? How do I please God with my life? And you hear a message and you hear the guy proclaiming, and he says, striving hard to be all that God wants me to be. Yes, that's it. I knew I had to bring something to the dance. I've got to strive hard to be all that God wants me to be. That's got to be it, right? 
And then you hear phrases like, the door to knowing God is all about self-effort. You've got to do something. And you'll hear people quote like James 2, that faith without works is dead. You've got to work because if you're not working, your faith is going to be dead, right? I mean, you've got to work if you're going to really know God because God wants you to please him. And you sit there and you ponder. You're like, how do I do that? And you get on this performance treadmill and you continue to just spin in circles. After the message is over, you're asked to join a group for fellowship, and you're like, yeah, I need to do that. I need to do that. And all of a sudden, you walk into this room, and they're having this fellowship time, and you notice that the room is called the room of good intentions. Yes, good intentions. But the old theologian Randy Travis said, I've heard it tell that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And you see people walking around and people starting to interact and you see one person go up to the next person and how was your week and how is your day and how are things going in your life? And you hear everybody answer the same way. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. That four-letter F word, fine, all you hear is fine and you're going fine. And someone looks at you and goes, how are you doing? Well, I'm trying to figure some things out. My life is sideways. I'm battling addictions. I've got anger issues. I'm going through a divorce. I'm trying to overcome the bottle. And shh, stop it. And they bring you a mask and say, put this on. You're fine. And none of us are fine. And none of us have ever been fine. And we've all struggled and we're trying to figure it out. But you find yourself in the room of good intentions. And there's a banner hanging on the wall that says, I'm working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And people are looking at this banner and they're going, yes, work on your sin. You've got to get your sin problem under control. You've got to clean up. You've got to grow up. And many of us that have been introduced to legalism, we go work on your sin, strive to be better. You've got to get better every day. But you look around and you don't see the joy of the Lord. People are cynical and skeptical and they're tired and they're always living in disappointment. And you're looking going, why? Why? But reality is... When we try to please God and we get onto this performance treadmill, all we're doing is losing every day. A mask looks attractive when we want to prove to others that we're worthy of their love. A mask looks attractive when we want to prove to ourselves that we even deserve being loved. I mean, a mask looks attractive when we don't want anyone to feel sorry for us, right? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm going to put a mask on. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. If you knew what I was going through right now, you, you wouldn't want to talk to me. I mean, I, it's tough. I haven't had enough money to buy food, and my life is spiraling, and my rage and anger problems, and I, I put a mask on. I, I don't want you to see the real me. I don't want you to feel sorry for me. So we hide, and we wear the mask. 
Because we fear if others see the real me, they'll walk away and never have anything else to do. We want to be seen as great and cool and hip. Because that's what the world has told us, right? You've got to look good. You've got to play the part. You've you, you got to sing right. You've got to sound right. And you've got to dress right. Yes, and you've got to get the biggest Bible, and you've got to carry that thing in. And God forbid that you don't use these and thous. God would be royally pissed at you. You wouldn't fit into the culture at all. That's shameful to God. And so many people get introduced to the marinade of performance and pleasing, and they're captives, and they stay locked up. And even church people are tempted to wear a mask when we want to prove to God that we're worthy of his love. Or we believe God wants us to fake it so that he looks good. If I tell other people that I'm a Christian and I'm going through all the stinking sewage I'm going through, oh, that would not make God look good as if God is codependent upon me making him look good. So we want God to bless our lives, right? God, you're going to bless my life. So the price tag is good behavior. I'm willing to behave. Or we think we're in competition with other people, and we look at where other people are, and undoubtedly God is grading on a spiritual curve. So if, if, if I'm being in, in this race with you, I've got to be a little bit better than you. So if it means me putting you down to get ahead, I'm okay with that, Right? And this is the introduction for so many people in the Southern culture that we've been beat up and we've been handcuffed and we've been beat down. And our shame makes us believe that God is disgusted with us, thus you've got to wear a mask. And this was my introduction. 13 years old, I have no clue. But, but you got introduced to John 3.16. You got introduced to the gospel that God really loves you and God wants to save you. Yes, get a haircut. Get a haircut. What does that got to do with Jesus getting in my heart? Don't go to the movies. You can't listen to the Doobie Brothers and Eagles anymore. Hotel California, if you play it backwards, it's devil music. No mixed swimming, Tim. No. And all I heard was behave, behave, behave. And I was never taught believe, trust, depend, rely on. Delight yourself in the Lord. You've got to behave. How are you behaving? Because if you behave really well, you can move up the ladder. And when we embrace the path of striving hard to be all that God wants me to be, our formula for godliness is this. More right behavior plus less wrong behavior equals godliness. And it has nothing to do with knowing God, nothing to do with experiencing God. And people are nodding and shaking their heads going, I've been there. Because we can never solve our sin problem ourselves. We can't solve our sin problem by working on it. We can't. It's like trying to put out a fire with a water gun. It just doesn't work. And that theology that many of us was introduced to about perform and behave and be pleased, please God. I don't know how to please God. God was pleased with his son 
and his son only. And I'm in his son, and his son is in me, and that's the hope of glory, praise the Lord. But I couldn't perform enough. And the cross is God's only way of dealing with sin. I was nailing my son to the cross. But I was thinking about this. Can you remember, if you've got some church marinade in you, can you remember when you were free enough to pray honestly to God for the first time? Remember, it wasn't, Father in heaven, I come before thee. No, no, no. Lord, my mind is so jacked up, I don't know how to think without having lustful thoughts at times. If you don't change my mind, I'm, I'm going to stay screwed up the rest of my life. You ever prayed those kind of real prayers that you never heard prayed in churches? And I'm like, get wrong. Tell me what you're feeling. I'm a good, good father. Come to me. Come to the throne of grace so that you can find mercy in time of need. You ain't got to pose and you ain't got to perform and you ain't got to pretend and you don't have to play it anymore. Just get gut level honest with me. My life sucks and if you don't help me, I have no chance. That's a good prayer. Did y'all hear me? And I'm not dogging the D's and nows. I'm really not. But I'm just saying that the formality did not introduce me to anything of intimacy. Why is our view of God so twisted? And why is God introduced as being a transactional God? I was not taught to experience God. I was taught to fear God. God's going to smoke you. And guilt motivated me so much early on in my journey. And all of a sudden, somebody comes to you and says, listen, listen, listen. That's religion you've been a part of. Religion? Yes. It's religion. It, the journey with Christ is not about religion. It's about a relationship. God is a relational God. He doesn't invite you to religion. Religion, in its purest definition, means to return to bondage. He's not wanting you to return to bondage. You were just coming out of bondage when you came to the Christ, uh, came to uh, faith in Christ. Maybe your bondage was a little bit different, but you're coming back to another form of bondage. He's a relational father. And so all of a sudden you're like, someone invites you to the cross. And you're like, I'm going to go to the cross. I've never been to the cross. I want to see what's happening at the cross. And you come in here and we're like, God wants you to learn to trust him. And you hear statements like, God don't want your money. He just wants your obedience. God just wants you to trust him. He wants you to trust in the Lord and do good. Cultivate faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Just trust him. And you come in here and you hear messages like, living out of who God says I am. Living out of who God says I am. Well, who does God say that I am? He says, you're accepted, and you're secure, and you're significant, and you're his friend, and you're his child, and you matter living out of who God says I am. 
And you hear messages like the door to freedom and the door to knowing God is humility. It's not self-effort. It's humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's getting to a place where you don't have to trust you any longer. You don't have to trust your agendas and your solutions and strategies to make it work. That's not going to work. It's never worked. It's the door of humility. It's all beggars coming to the foot of the cross to find manna and bread to say and you hear the favorite verse oftentimes being shared that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith God extended grace to you when you were wicked or when you were self-righteous or when you were so consumed with you and it's by grace you've been saved It's not a result of works and what you can do and how you can manufacture it. You're his workmanship. You're a one of a kind piece of art created in Christ Jesus and two good works. Before the foundation of the world, God says, you're you're my workmanship. You're my masterpiece. You're not mass produce. So after the message, you're invited to go into a room and It says, welcome to the room of grace. And you walk in and someone looks at you and says, how are you doing? But based on your experience, you've got all of these flesh patterns and you go, I'm fine. No. How are you doing? Well, my life sucks and I'm battling addictions and I'm in the ditch right now and I just went through a divorce and I'm on the edge of bankruptcy and I've got all these anger issues and bitterness issues and and all of a sudden you hear someone else say, is that all you got? I'm a fraud. I battle alcoholism. I cheat. I've lied. Is that all you got? And a person looks and says, welcome to the room of grace, to the room of honesty, and to the room of transparency. Welcome to the room where healing and restoration can take place, where masks are dropped and you don't have to pose and perform any longer. Really? So this is a place of restoration, a place of healing. Yes. 122 times in the New Testament, the word grace is mentioned. Grace, charisse, the peace and the presence and the power and the unconditional agape from heaven. Grace. Yes. Don't you want to wallow in that room? Don't you want to stay in that room? But many of us conclude that it's too good to be true. But we stand there and all of a sudden we see a banner hanging on the wall that says, I'm standing with God. My sin is right in front of me and he and I are working on it together. And it's not that he's over there and I'm over here trying to get my sin junk right before I can come to him. It's that he goes, Emmanuel. Your God is with you right in the middle of your crap, your junk, your crud, your mess. I'm with you. Really? Yes. So you can be honest about it. You can lay it at his feet. And all of a sudden you start looking around and these people, 
They have a new nature. They're, they're excited about life. The joy of the Lord is central. They have Christ in them. They're not who they were. But they don't permit posing and they don't permit all this stinking hiding and mass stuff. You're going, come on. So Paul writes to the believers in Galatia. Chapter 3. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law? Let me ask you a question. You're, you're being bewitched. The Judaizers and the legalizers are coming back in, and they're trying to take you out of the game of walking by faith in the grace of the gospel. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law? Of course not. For the Holy Spirit came upon you only after you believed the message you heard about Christ. After starting your Christian life in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by human effort and performance? Are you going to throw it all the way? Are you going to throw away grace? Are you going to throw away the freedom of Christ? He's not saying you've got a license to sin. Are you going to throw it all away? Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law of Moses? Could the law of Moses really save you? By keeping the Ten Commands and the other commands, did they save you? No, they locked you up. It is because you believe the message. You heard about Christ that your life began to change. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under the curse. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all these commands that are written in God's book. It is clear that no one can be right with God by keeping the law. It is through faith that a righteous person has life. Just join me. Was anybody ever introduced to and tried to play the performance pleasing God game? Just anybody? Am I the only freak of the weekend here? I mean, anybody? Anybody ever feel like you never measured up? You couldn't measure up, and even on your good days, you felt like God was still semi-ticked at you? See, pleasing says do. The gospel says done. Trusting says be. Be. People that are living by grace who are wallowing in the agape of the Savior, the unconditional love of the Savior— they don't want to get away with sinning. That's one of the things I noticed. People that are living under legalism and religion and rules still try to figure out how close to the line of sinning they can get and how much sin they can do before they've really sinned too greatly according to their scales. But people that are walking in the grace of the gospel that are loved by Jesus, they don't want to get away with sinning. They desire to enjoy Christ. They're starving for relationship, not religion. I don't want to get away with sinning. I want to enjoy Jesus. I don't want anything to hinder that enjoyment and experience with Jesus. You also notice they have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit now, the power of the dunamis, the parakletos that lives inside of them, encourages and rebukes and corrects and guides and challenges. And they're like, I've got God in me. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And when our primary motive becomes trusting God, 
There's nothing that pleases him even you know, any, any, anywhere close to that. When your primary motive is to trust God, you realize nothing pleases God like trusting God. Pleasing God is a byproduct of trusting God. Trust me with all your heart. Seek me with everything that you have. I want you to know me. Life in Christ is not about what I can do to make myself acceptable. Life in Christ is about what he's done on the cross to accept me. I don't have to clean up. He goes, come to me if you're tired and weary and beat up with religion. Learn to take my yoke and my sayings upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not here to beat you up. So John Lynch, the guy who wrote The Cure, he wrote a thing called the New Testament Gamble. And I'm reading this going, solid. Listen to what he says. What if I tell them who they really are? What if, what if I take away any fear, condemnation, judgment, or rejection? What if I tell them I love them, I'll always love them. No matter what they've done, I love them as much as I do my only son. What if I told them there's nothing they can do to make my love go away? What if I told them that there is no list? What if I told them that they are righteous with my righteousness right now? What if I told them they could stop being formal and stiff around me? What if I told them I was absolutely crazy about them? What if I told them that if they ran away and did the most horrible things when they came back, I'd receive them with tears and a party? What if I told them I don't keep score of past offenses, like how little they pray or how many times they've let me down or how little they read their Bible? What if I told them that they don't have to be owned by religion or traditions? What if I told them that they have a new nature, that they're saints, not just saved sinners? What if I told them they didn't have to put a mask on, that it was really okay to be exactly who they are at this moment with all their junk? What if I told them I actually live in them now, the ones who by faith and repentance have placed their confidence in me, I put my love and my power and my nature, it lives in them. What if they didn't have to look over their shoulder in fear when things were going well? anticipating that all hell was about to break loose? What if they knew that I never used the word punish in relation to them? What if they had permission to stop trying to impress me and just be real? What if I told them that I kind of like Eric Clapton's music too? <laughs> and the white gloves and handbells at Christmas kind of not my cup of tea? And I never really was into the these and thous that much either. What if they knew the basis of our friendship was not on how little they sin, but it was on how much they let me love them? What if I told them they could open their eyes when they pray and still go to heaven? What if I told them that it wasn't about self-effort, but allowing me to live my life in them and through them? What if I told them they could hurt my heart, but I would never hurt theirs? What if they actually believed that I was really for them? What if they really believe what I believe about them? So the good news is God invites us to 
trust him, experience him, to know him, to wallow in the love of him. I want to saturate you with my love and my presence. When our primary motive is to trust God, to live from him and not try to live for him, to depend on him, there's nothing that pleases him more. Now, what if Jesus was not over there leaving you right here to have to work on your sin? What if through the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus overcoming death, hell, and the grave, what about if he really was right here with you 24-7? And what about if even you jack it up? And what about if you are having what you think is your worst day? What about if the face of the Father would smile at you and say, I'm with you. I love you. I'm going to work with you to overcome what you're going through. What if Emmanuel is true? What if God is really with us? And what if he invites us to say, trust me with all your heart. Repent of your religion. Repent of your self-effort. Stop, stop, stop. It's not about trying, God. It's about trusting. Now, come to me. I pray that today's word encouraged you. And thanks for joining us uh, on this uh, broadcast today. If we can help you in your walk with Christ in any way, feel free to contact us here at the Cross Loganville. Our email, info at thecrossloganville.org, or you can call us 770-554-3322. God bless you, and I pray that you have just an incredible day.